Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Welcome back, everybody. This is the second episode with Dr. Keith Deer. So let's talk about the impacts of quantum computing for artificial intelligence. So we know that you know we're going to have way more processing power that we have currently to run those massive models in a much shorter period. I have a couple of questions on this topic. Okay. So first, we will need huge amount of data, of clean data, right? So whatever we are processing will make sense. Are we able to feed the right data sets to have unbiased results? And is there such thing as unbiased? Like, does it even exist? So I, that, that's an AI question more than a, a quantum question, I think. Go back to my, my first point on explainable humans. In exactly the same way, most data sets are biased as, as most humans are biased, right? And there are rare exceptions to this, but for the most part, if you grow up in an environment that where look, we use racism on, on the last episode, so let, let's, let's mention that again here because it, it makes the point neatly, right? If you grow up in an environment where everybody around you is racist, right, where racism is the norm, where racism is accepted, another way of putting that, if all your training data through the first 18 years of your life is like intensely racist, guess what? <laughs> you, you've trained a, a neural network, your brain, to be racist. Now, there are a very occasionally, very occasionally examples where that's not true. And it usually comes out of the conflict with other ideas and people graduate and different social environments, person and the situation again. But for the most part, you train a neural network, i.e. the human brain on a biased data set. And what you get is biased decision making. And that's the same in AI. And so I would say there are tools and we develop them, my colleagues, Dominic Katara and others in the, in the team are constantly coming out with new ways of identifying bias in the data before you even feed it into the model. But ultimately, like until you iron out all bias in humans, you're never going to iron out all bias in, in algorithms. And actually, that's not necessarily desirable either. So I'm going to be, as ever, maybe slightly controversial. But if you think about what, what bias is, right, like bias is, is in part about categorization. And sometimes, sometimes that bias is positive sometimes like you have a a bias towards something and you, it's because you favor something because you've learned to categorize it you've learned to treat it favorably and sometimes it's hugely negative and problematic and we, we have both those examples but i think bias is a feature not a bug in human decision making you just the key is to become aware of the bias so if we go back to my like neural networks in humans like you grow up in that like racist environment you, everybody accepts racism around you nobody ever challenges it I suspect that like nearly all of us, though we like to think we'd all be better, I think we'd probably all be racist too, like the vast majority of us. And I don't, and that's irrespective of what race you are. If you grow up in an environment where like that's what most of us, the rare exceptions, that's what most of us will be. And like the way you overcome that is by becoming aware of the bias. That's like the first step, right? So, so I would say an algorithmic bias is the same. Like you first will try and identify the bias in the data, then decide how much of a problem that bias is. And then you seek to address it. Now, that, that is slightly glib. We're never going to iron it out and it's always going to cause problems. But, but guess what? Bias is always going to pro cause problems in humans and we're not going to fix that anytime soon either. So I, I'm not glibly dismissing the problem. It's a, it's a big problem. But I, I think one of the things we often do is treat it as if it's somehow like unique to machines. And I, I think it's, it's just as much a problem for humans, and I, I, if not more so. And we often are more aware of it in machines than we are in the human decision making. And I could give like, Example after example, but I don't think we need examples of human bias. We, we've all seen it in every day. 
No, 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 no. And no, and I completely agree. It's up to whoever is behind it and building it and feeding the system. And like, we just need to make sure it's going to be a diverse enough, multidisciplinary enough. And then, you know, we can actually get to cover as much as we can. Still, there will have problems, but as long as we can identify and just keep tweaking it until it's, it's better, right? And so still having access to data. And let me go back to something. The reason that I, I mentioned quantum computing first is because we're going to have way more processing power. So we'll be able to do more with more data. So more data, you know, and more capability to process everything and to get into faster conclusions So, or insights. Then what are the impacts of, of the data privacy movement? Because still we, will be, we have to be able to have access to, to data. And on, on the other side, you have this whole movement of people like restricting the, the uses, either for commercial uses or I don't know how it goes on the public sector. What's your thought about that? So take it in two parts. So the, the, the first bit on computing, like what that means and vast data sets and the second thing on the protection. So, so yeah, that's exactly right. Like if you imagine the graph of computational, like a log, the log linear graph, I think you've seen me present it before, but like it's a, it's a flat line a log, and, it, and it shows, it, that would suggest that there haven't been advances in, in increases in compute, but there have. And then, you know, about 2010, it starts going up massively and suddenly like algorithms that already existed are now doing things you never imagined possible. And principally what enabled that was improvements in computational power. And then, uh, you know, tiny advert, you can edit this out if you want. But then there's Fugaku, which is the world's fastest supercomputer that Fujitsu build, which is like faster than the next four. And on that graph, it's like, it's like you know, right up there. I'm kind of waving my hand in the air. It's like right up there. And then if you if you think of like what quantum computing is going to do, it's going to smash that right off the charts. Like the computational power is just, yeah, super log linear or I don't know, something greater. But it's, it's, not, it's literally not on that chart. So and also to note that like quantum computing is also fundamentally different. So, so you can't just linearly extrapolate to say, well, this is what current algorithms do. Like quantum algorithms are going to operate differently, they're going to enable things. And, and frankly, unless you're a quantum scientist and probably a quantum scientist working in the AI space, you're probably not in a, in a great position to talk precisely about what those breakthroughs will be. It's well beyond our imagination. But what we can say is it's going to be a, across a kind of mathematical breadth, like a state space, wider than we, we can ever imagine, and a recursive depth, like if then, you know, you think about chess players thinking, well, if I do this, then she will do that. And, if she does that, then I should do this and trying to think through that. Like it's going to be on a, rec a recursive depth that one, we can't match. And two, and I think this is crucial, we can't describe in narrative. Now, you, you think how we're having this conversation, right? We're making sense of complex topics through stories, through anecdotes, through narrative all the time. Like that kind of mathematical state space and recursive depth, we're already well beyond the human's ability to expand, explain. And I like quantum algorithms are going to take us well beyond that. And, and, and I, I don't know what that world looks like, but I, I know it's going to, like we all know, it's going to lead to profound scientific breakthroughs, solve problems we, we like that are currently intractable and also help us find problems we can't currently find and then solve those too. So, so there's that element. And your question is like, okay, but like what does that mean when we can connect across that like state space of data such that we can draw inferences well beyond like insight and foresight, well beyond anything we've ever seen before? Like what does that mean for individuals? So I, I, data protections and data privacy are, are a profound challenge. I, I know I have friends who are working on blockchain solutions. But I think fundamentally what we need is we, we have kind of four models at the moment for how we manage individual data in the world. We have, and these are, these are broad conceptual generalizations, they're imperfect, but we have digital authoritarianism, which principally, uh, as I would say, as practiced by China, which sees the individuals as a threat to the state to be managed, their opinions, their views, their agency seen as a threat. And so they take that data, 
try and get insight and foresight and then prevent them ever becoming a threat and, and manage their behavior. Then you have like what is sometimes described as surveillance capitalism, and that's the kind of US model which sees people as products to be exploited. Your data is, has commercial value, and that's what it's used for. And then you have a kind of EU model, which I would say, not everybody would agree, but I would say treats privacy as a kind of as an absolute good. And I don't think it is, and I'm, we probably should dive into that. But, but the, the consequence of that is that it severely limits the kind of innovation that you were talking, like what do we do with like all that data? Well, you'll be holding back not just quantum, but the AI, supercomputing, the whole lot, if you don't give it access to those vast data sets. And so I don't think we can afford that level of protection either, particularly not given competition in science and tech. So I, I think we need, like coming to really directly answering your question, I think we need a model for digital democracy that gets beyond the kind of hand-waving, we need digital democracy that you might see in a foreign, in like journals like Foreign Affairs or Foreign Policy Mag, and gets down to the kind of what, what we turn in the businesses as the solutions architect level, where the girls and guys get together and start saying, okay, this is what that means in practice. It's connecting this technology to that technology in these ways, and here's how we embed the values. And right now, I don't think we have that, and, and I, I, like, that's, that's what I think we need. So it's kind of hopefully not admiring your problem, but it's trying to narrow the way in which we conceptualize it. But I don't think anyone can answer it yet because it doesn't exist at, at that level. So it's mine. Okay, so, you know, sometimes I come across articles that states, and I'm super curious about your answer about that. So it states that because of technology, we are getting less smart, lazier, as we are counting on our computers to think and memorize on our behalf. But on a brighter side, you know, we could view the glass half full and just say that we're stop wasting our time on memorizing things that we don't really need to, and on manual work that we don't have to do to focus on more relevant tasks. So my, my question to you is, first, what do you think about that? And what's the impact in terms of our knowledge and creativity? So are we getting less smart or do you think that we are actually going to be able in just, and our educational system currently definitely is not up for that today, but maybe that's just the evolution of education, right? And are we going to be able just to, to get the best of both worlds? So, F. Scott Fitzgerald described once how like, the sign of a truly fine intellect is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind and retain the ability to function. So that's my excuse for saying two things that are going to contradict each other in, in answering your question, right? So, like, firstly, if you look at the work of, like, there are many, but Joseph Heimrich is the exemplar on, on cultural revolution and cultural psychology, you might say. So Heimrich argues that, that most of human progress has been based on what you described, like the learning, like humans rarely, we, we don't even begin to know what we know, if that makes any sense. So he gives the example of like, if you take a monkey from, from South America and drop it into like the most isolated part of the Congo in Africa, right? Let's say 20 for the sake of argument and, and come back six months later and guess what? Do you know what? 20 of those monkeys are probably alive. Well, maybe not 20, but at least a large number are going to be alive because they have kind of innate things that they're able to do. And the chances are that they'll be fine. Take 20 kind of baby humans, right? The same age as those baby monkeys and drop them in. Guess what? They're all going to be dead. And the reason for that is because we have cultural evolution that fits us to our, our local evolutionary niches. Like we don't know the things that keep us alive. And I'll give you a more specific example, which I think is, is a beautiful example of, of like things that we've learned that we forgot that we've learned. So Again, this is a Heimrich example. So he talks about how I think it's capis, capiscum, something like that. He's like the key ingredient in chilies. So I think that's right. And Heimrich points out that like chili use in food is much, much greater in hot countries, right? 
Why is that? Well, because, and I won't get this exactly right, but it basically offsets some of the problems that you have with rotten meat and you get a lot more rotten meat in hot countries, right? And so humans don't know that. Humans just think, well, like these people who live in these most hot countries, are, like they generally eat spiked, we don't know why. The inverse, right? In cold countries, when you look cook a recipe, there are like certain, there's an order that you put your ingredients in your food. Like I'm not gonna get this perfect, but like onions first, for example. But there's like an order that you should put herbs in your food. And then when, when you dig into that a little bit and study it today, we go, oh, guess what? Do you know what? Like the order that we put those things in the food is almost precisely the best way to put them in to maximize their herbal, herbal properties for, for providing a whole raft of health benefits. So really good examples of cultural evolution. Like at some point, somebody along the way found that like, or maybe they didn't even know, they just started putting it in their food and like they lived longer than the person next to them. And now like society evolved this whole way of doing things. And we don't know that we know that. Okay, so so like, like that's cultural. Like, there are loads of examples. They're, they're the two that I can remember offhand. So like now fast forward and now like, uh, actually I'm, I'm always slightly ashamed of this, but when, when Google Maps first came out, or it was TomTom first, wasn't it? So I had a TomTom and I used to use that. And we used to joke, my dad, my dad's name's Pat, and he used to joke about like Pat, Pat, right? And my dad had driven all over London all his life. He knew it inside out. I'd get lost. I'd ring my dad and be like, okay, TomTom's got me lost again. Like, how the hell do I get out of here? And he's amazing, right? He's like, well, what can you see? And I'd be like, there's like a bridge and there's a McDonald's. And then he's like, okay, down past the BP garage, turn right, take the, you're like, I don't know how you did that. It's amazing. So like, that was a thing. And his knowledge of London was, was incredible. And then like a few years later, we, we were like going home with Google Maps and I, I followed Google Maps and I got home before him and I was like, and I, I and suddenly I realized that that incredible skill is not a thing that you necessarily like need anymore, right? Like it's a thing that we, it's a thing that, that was necessary that we kind of, if you like, learned, evolved, whatever, reading maps, all of that, that whole skill set, you just don't really need it anymore. And that's not, I think that's a problem in the same way that I don't need to know why I'm put chilies, putting, putting chilies in my food or why I'm putting the herbs in in a particular order. I don't need it. I just like, I can just get there. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that's largely a problem, but I said I was gonna give like the opposed idea. So the inverse of that is that I think AI is challenging, challenging in that regard because it's doing things that we think are uniquely human. And we keep redefining what we mean by intelligent to be to largely just to be those things machines haven't done yet, right? And I think like it's interesting to say, well, at the point that like they can do everything, what what is what is kind of left that is uniquely human? So like, you know, we have AI now creating kind of sketches and, and artworks that are at least competing with illustrators, although like illustrators of Twitter are now gonna kill me because they say it's not quite perfect. Well, it's not quite perfect, but it's really good. It's churning out uh, Eric Huell had a really good blog blog post on how his principal competitors are increasingly gonna be AI because GPT three is now producing articles we can't distinguish on occasions from those by human authors. And okay, they don't compete with Shakespeare, but they do probably compete with, you know, those the vast majority of authors. And 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 and. So like, what does that mean for those of us that, that are in, what do we call ourselves, knowledge workers sometimes? Like, what does that mean? You, you've got AI that can code now, and you go, well, it can't do it as well as humans. Well, not yet, no. You know, so sometimes like, we, we describe the, the risk that humans go the way of horses. So, so the combustion engine replaced physical power, and now, like, we had, an, I can't remember the numbers, we had, like, X million horses in the US, the UK, Europe, and now we have, like, a vanishingly small number because they've been replaced by cars. Well, if... If what we're talking about now is like looking instead of horsepower, but for a measure of cognitive power that AI gives us, well, what is it like? Are we the horses? And then what does that mean for us? So, so like two opposed ideas because I think like those things are both important to understand and their intention. And yeah, I think it's hugely advantageous and also deeply worrying. And great reflections, definitely. So we have all this increasing use of the algorithms to better target information based on our behavior, right? So basically, we see what we want to see. Want it or not. So how to protect 
individuals' autonomy to make decisions. If all the information we are getting from the world is being sent to us in a way of what they think that we want to see, but we're not really getting the whole picture ever. Okay, so like, I'm going to start with, with how I kind of got into AI. So I'm studying psychology. So they used to host this thing that they called AI Conversations in Magdalen College. And, it, and like, um, it was when AI was breaking into the mainstream. And so we would go along from all different disciplines and we would talk about, like, okay, well, what, what, what does this mean for, like, for everything? What does AI mean for the future? And really, it was like super, it was super exciting. It was like a really, in my life, it was like a turning point, a bit grand. But it, it, at least it was just a really exciting time to be playing around with ideas and like trying to figure out what they meant. And the result was that like you come out and like now you need to read like another hundred papers because some guy or girl in another discipline has told you something that's just so interesting. And so one of the things that I learned and then went away and read as much as I could about is that like philosophers broadly have long since concluded that we don't have an agency anyway, that everything is determined. Like there's not there's a thing, there's compatibilism, but it's not it's not the mainstream idea in philosophy. The mainstream idea in philosophy is that our ideas, our agency is largely an illusion. So like that's the first that's the first thing, and then like my own field of psychology in the adjacent field of neuroscience, and I, I was doing um, a Duke University diploma in neuroscience at the same time, medical neuroscience, trying to understand that element. And like there's a book by Michael Gazzaniga called "Who's in Charge," which sums up a lot of this research really well. Like Gazzaniga found that we have what did he call it? Like the the left brain explainer module, I think is how he describes it. But basically, like you, if when you cut the corpus callosum between the left and right brain, now you can present things that only one half of the brain can see, the other half, other half can't. Right? So you, so you cover up one eye, and now one side of the brain can see this thing through the other eye because your eyes are connected. Yeah, okay, um, to different sides of the brain. So you cover up one eye, and now it sees it, and the other side doesn't. What humans do? A confabulator. That's what he called it. Confabulation. So what you do is like like you show like the one eye, say a fire. And then you ask the other brain through the ear that's connected to that side of the brain, but not the other one. You say, okay, well, like, how do you feel? And the person goes, I feel really hot and uncomfortable, but I don't know why. And then they come up with, like, with these massive confabulations to explain it. So like post-event explanations that rationalize the way they feel. And then like, I might not be doing it full justice, but there are endless examples of the way in which we try to make sense. We're like, coming up with stories that make sense, but are not, are not true. So like Gazzaniga's work in neuroscience seems to go quite a long way towards the, the philosophy position, but from a different angle that says, no, like we, we, we're not really making those decisions. We're just explaining those decisions to ourselves, making them make sense even when they don't make sense. So like, that's another like huge challenge, like how rational are we really? And Gazzaniga makes the point that even once you've concluded that like most of what you believe is probably distorted BS, even if you're a neuroscientist, you don't go around thinking and feeling that way. Like that's not how you live your life, even though you kind of know that's true, right? So I guess my point is like the starting point should be if we if we're thinking about this deeply, like philosophical, neuroscientifically, we should be quite skeptical about how much agency we have anyway. But then if we if we make the starting point for the second part of my answer to your question, Gazzaniga's like view that, yeah, OK, that's all well and good. But like at the same time, when Gazzaniga and other neuroscientists are living their lives, they're not thinking all the time, well, I'm just making this up. Like they treat themselves as if they're rational and they have agency and their decisions matter. So like from a practical perspective, that's how we have to live. There, I think we have huge challenges, right? So now you have like micro-targeted marketing, you have ocean models of personality that are at the moment the most robust predictor of future behavior. You know, you have, you're, like it's often said that, that, that increasingly technology knows us better than we know ourselves. And I think, I think that's increasingly true. If I have enough data, I'm likely to make better forecasts about what you will do in the future than, than you do. Not It won't be 100% right, but it will be right more often than you are about your future behavior. Look, I think we have huge challenges and, and, and in the integrated review um, one of the things that the review said was that we talked about individual sovereignty 
the idea that supranational organisations had, had lifted decision making away from citizens, and at the same time, these kind of micro-targeted approaches to manipulation across authoritarian countries and capitalist economies from from companies were increasingly nudging people and limiting their ability to make independent decisions. And that, like for me, is a fundamental threat to democracy because democracy is based on the idea that we're making decisions that are at least that are as free as they possibly can be that we have kind of bounded rationality and like all of those things are like almost all mutually contradictory but they're all helpful different lenses to look at the same like fundamentally challenging and profound problem that you you raise you know when thinking about it it's the role of education behind is always is so critical i'm not just talking about the educational system but since you know what what you learn from home when you're a toddler you're a baby you're a toddler depending on on you know how you're raised you're either trained to just accept whatever you hear or you're taught to question things and to to already understand and to already have this this spacing on mind that is open to say okay i'm listening to that it might be that it might be something else and just have a, an open mind about it right because I understand that, you know, depending on so many variables, we still will never be able to choose exactly, you know, what information is going to come to us. But just having the understanding that things could be different of whatever you're learning, maybe it's just a, already a step forward, right? And some countries and some cultures are going to have a more open and education that is going to allow you to be more questionable and not so authoritarian, like not so hierarchical. Some others, you just have to accept whatever you listen to and for sure this is going to, to to plan impact okay so i have a last question for you believe it or not it goes a little back to your military background okay and your current role of, of, of you know the, the all the emerging technologies so what role is technology playing on the future of war what can you see different from today what's happening today so using what is happening today you know and, and the conflict between russia and ukraine and then thinking about all the development, the technological development that we're going to have in the coming decades, how do you envision the future of war? <laughs> so it's a, pretty, it's a pretty big question. And I feel like a, an awful lot of my friends and colleagues, if, if, they, if they listen to this, are now like I'm now under the microscope, so no pressure here. So, so look, I think the war in, U in Ukraine is proving kind of two things concurrently again. On the one hand, it's proving an awful lot of timeless lessons, the kind of almost cliched things that you learn uh, as a military officer around friction and uncertainty, criticality of logistics, the importance of intelligence, the importance of good maintenance, the importance of morale and discipline, and these things that, that often trump technology. And I can, I can almost see a friend and colleague Jack Watling at, at Rusi like looking at me as I say this. So he, like all of that stuff is true, right? Like that. And we're learning those lessons over and over again in Ukraine. And like one of the fundamental differences, I think, is that, that Russia's morale is terrible. Its maintenance is maintenance of its kit is awful. Its logistics have been really poor. And like and on the Ukrainian side, through their own like courage, determination, their training, their improvements and reforms they've made in recent years, and of course the huge assistance they're getting with intelligence and logistics and those things from overseas, like they're just proving much more effective in things that are timeless. So like like let me start by like by giving something to my colleagues who often think I'm too evangelistic about technology. Like that isn't going to change. It's not going to change in the future. But in the 1991 Gulf War, like there was a, a quiet revolution in how we did logistics, applying AI, symbolic AI. It's a US thing. It's a DARPA program. It took eight months, and then they deployed artificial intelligence to, to predict like logistics requirements and inform inform the process. And, and all of the reviews afterwards said logistics had never been as effective as it as it was after them before. Well, like not in defense because they're they're, they're slower. Like genuinely, just 
apologies, apologies to my colleagues, paying for these slow adopters of emerging technology. But across the private sector, like supply chains are being completely revolutionized by things like digital annealing, which is a kind of quantum inspired technique by, by artificial intelligence to predict demand, a rapid optimization, which is what, what annealing does, um, huge through data driven decision making. And like, like we are eventually defense everywhere will adopt those kind of approaches. And I, I think it's completely revolutionized how we do logistics. Then I think like 30 years ago, Admiral William Owens started talking about network-centric warfare and everybody said, yeah, that's definitely what we need. Now in the UK, at least, we're talking about multi-domain integration. It's another kind of buzzword thing. But really what this means is like you put the network at the center and that's what drives the decisions. And then you have like the, the things that you use are less important than the network that enables it. Like it's the way information flows across that network, the speed at which you can do it. And like for me... That is still the future of warfare, but it's been the future of warfare since 1990. And the problem that you have is there's a whole load of incentives and institutional inertia that has completely, like our militaries are structured around domains, uh, by which I mean air, land, and sea principally, and they defend their turf pretty quickly, pretty pretty hard. Um, And it is not built around networks. So we remain a completely domain, and and I would say platform-centric force, by which I mean like, when a particular bit of kit, a tank or an aircraft goes out of service, what the service tends to do is go, hmm, okay, we need to replace that aircraft. What kind of aircraft do we need next? Like that is just all wrong. You should absolutely start with a network. So like that's the way in which it changes warfare, where it's like whose network is the most effective, who in Christian Brose's term closes the kill chain faster, who makes decisions faster. I think much more roboticization. I've talked about the future battlefield looking like a dystopian zoo as we see more biomimetic machines so machines that have learned and fly and move like like creatures of the natural world i think that's the slightly terrifying but i think it's likely to be the future the future reality and then as i said like the the human will not be making the majority of those decisions so on the stock exchange today is a great paper in nature from a few years ago called trading at the speed speed of light in fact we talked about this right in when we we're kind of preparing for this so that paper trading at the speed of light should be read by like all military officers and staff colleges and it, it talks about how decisions are literally made in nanoseconds and all automated and even the speed bump they put in to stop flash crashes is like faster than a camera's flash and most of the errors that you see on the stock exchange are what they call fat fat finger error i.e when the human gets involved you get the problem right I, like when that's trading at the speed of light, I'm going to say, I would say once you've got true network centric warfare, like you you will have warfare at the speed of light and there are not humans in, the, in that loop because if there are, you're going to lose. I think like there are some things that will be utterly timeless and won't change. And there are some things that are going to be a complete revolution and the country that gets there first with the latter will be the one that wins. But if they do that whilst neglecting the, the basics equally, that they will lose. You know, Russia had a lot of flashy kit, but none of the basics right. You need both. You need to get the timeless basics right, and then you need to see that vision of the future and make it a reality. And we tend to get this absurd debate where we go, it's one or the other. Well, it's not. You need both. And I would say um, they are the lessons that we could be learning from Ukraine from the kind of the little glimpses of the future that we're seeing through application of advanced technologies, but also wider than Ukraine, the revolutions in, in approaches in all sectors that we're seeing through the application of emerging technology. I, I get excited about this. This is my thing. So, yeah. <laughs> and you know, whoever whoever will have access to the most advanced technology will have the power at the end, right? Yeah. So my answer is, is yes with that earlier caveat. If you've neglected the basics, like if you've got this amazing flashy kit, brilliant networks, so all the stuff that I talk about, and like your people are utterly demoralized, your like system is completely corrupt, your, your like none of your kit works because it's not maintained because it's all in yachts in Cyprus. 
you're going to lose. So it's no, it's no good having one whilst neglecting all those other things. They are just as important as they've always been. And, I, and that, that's kind of, I guess that's that's the balance because sometimes in evangelizing and, and, and making the case for emerging technologies, I think people have thought that I didn't think those things were important. I absolutely do, but they're the basics. Like you have to get those things right. It should be axiomatic. That was such a delightful conversation. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Dr. Kidd. I really had fun. And I think our listeners will have a lot to think about, a lot of great reflections. So thank you so much for being here with us today. If you'd like to say anything else, I'm going to leave you know, the final words with you. And it was a real pleasure. Yeah, Maria. So, firstly, it, it was like well, when we did when we had the chat, there was like kind of like what might we talk about? That was tremendous fun. Today has been even more fun. So, thank you so much to you for having me on the podcast for great questions, um, and, and thank you to all your listeners for for bearing with my my long winded answers. Uh, if you can bear more of that, you can follow me at KPD Musing on Twitter. But other other than that, just thank you everyone for listening, and thank you Maria for having me on the podcast. Future Hacker Life Path Future.